Welcome to Live from Tater's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 15, Bernard Stiegler's philosophy with Daniel Ross. In Plato's allegory of the cave, one of the prisoners is freed and dragged up to the surface, where they have some original insight. But when they return to the cave, their message does not reach the people who are still there. There are a lot of ways to interpret this part of the allegory, and we have already discussed some of them in other episodes. But the most literal interpretation is that Plato was a philosopher and a student of Socrates. And he writes the allegory after Socrates was put to death for impiety and corrupting the youth of Athens. As we will discuss in this episode, Athens at that time was in a crisis. And Socrates was questioning some basic assumptions of the establishment. So when Plato writes that the people in the cave don't listen to the returning soul, He might be alluding to how philosophy is often not heard in society, and particularly when that society is in a crisis. We could ask ourselves, which philosophers today are not heard or not heard enough? And what would happen if we studied them, tried to understand them, no matter how strange and complex their message seems at first? This is what we are going to try today. From my perspective, Bernard Stiegler is one of those philosophers. We already discussed Stiegler in two previous episodes, with Dominic Petman in episode 10 and with Peter Lemons in episode 11. While Stiegler's work is extremely complex, it is also directly about what we are experiencing today. And by that I mean the accelerating evolution of technology, a crisis of attention, climate change, the idea that we are living in a post-truth world where facts don't seem to matter anymore. It seems like knowledge is replaced with information, which, as Stiegler writes, is the very opposite of knowledge. Ironically, Stiegler's work is not yet widely known. Many of his books are still unpublished in English, and the books that are published are not read enough. Our guide today is trying to change that. Daniel Ross obtained his doctorate from Monash University in 2002. He is the author of Violent Democracy and of Psychopolitical Anaphylaxis, Steps Towards the Metacosmics. He is also the co-director with David Barrison of the feature documentary The Ister, which premiered at the Rotterdam International Film Festival in 2004 and which won awards in Montreal and Marseille. Through that film, he met Bernard Stiegler, and published 11 volumes of translation of Stiegler's work, and at the moment is working on other translations as well. For instance, the Nanjing Lectures, and the collective volume by Stiegler and the International Collective, entitled Bifurcate, There is No Alternative. These books too are published with Open Humanities Press, which means that you can download them for free online, as should be the case with all academic work actually. Okay, let's uh, start then. Thanks very much for uh, speaking with me today about Stiegler's work and your own work and the relationship between uh, those works. Um, I think we met once, must be 20 years ago, uh, during a screening of the Ister in Amsterdam. Yes, I can't really remember it, uh, to be honest, (laughs) but it was quite some time ago time ago maybe in Rotterdam 
Yeah, it was in Rotterdam or in Amsterdam. It was mm. with Dominic Petman, who I talked uh, to a few episodes ago. Well, the film premiered in Rotterdam. Yeah. Uh, but I went to Amsterdam during that trip, so it's possible. But I think I think it would have been Rotterdam. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, is there is kind of a kind of a cult uh, movie? I think in philosophy spheres, most people who who are interested in, for instance, Heidegger have seen it. It's a philosophical road movie. But speaking of roads and traveling, I was kind of reading because I don't really know you except that I met you then, and then when I started uh, reading more of Stiegler's work. I noticed translated by Daniel Ross <laughs> was uh, there a lot. And I read some of your introductions and everything. But when I started uh, looking you up on the internet, I, I saw that you started out studying physics. Is that correct? It is, but uh, but only for a short time. But it's, ah, okay. it's what I initially wanted to do uh, when I first went to university and for a long time before that. Um, and my interest in that at that time really was because it seemed to me that what physics tells you is that at the to understand the very largest scale you must also understand the very smallest scale yeah. and vice versa and that this is true in space if you want to understand the, the 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 way that galaxies unfold and so on, you need to understand uh, not just the, that the universe was smaller, but you need to understand about uh, the subatomic particles and forces. And if you want to understand those uh, subatomic particles and forces and where they came from, you need to understand the first few seconds of the, time after the big bang and and so this connection between the largest and the smallest scales and time and space seemed to me to be uh something incredible and worth mm. knowing more about but uh within a short amount of time i realized that uh, i wasn't going to be smart enough to <laughs> make any advances in these questions and and maybe not even smart enough to really understand them but but uh it was always an interest that i kept even though i then made the decision to get out and do something completely different yeah yeah and i guess we'll, we'll talk about this later but um uh stiegler uses concepts from physics like entropy um that uh, so I, I guess you I, still have I, some use of your knowledge of uh, physics and skill yeah that's right yeah yeah so how you how did you uh, switch to philosophy what was your interest i mean i guess when you put it like that it sounds that already sounds like a philosophical attitude the relationship between different skills yes uh but it's still a little bit of a few steps had to go to get from one to the other. Uh, where I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Melbourne, at that time in the 1980s, the philosophy departments were very much dominated by uh, analytical philosophy mm. and, and there wasn't much continental philosophy 
there. Uh, so to find it, you had to look around in other places. Uh, but even so, it wasn't it wasn't my overwhelming interest in the beginning. Uh, and as I was there. And with Dominic Petman at that time, we were undergraduates together, hmm. uh, we started to fall into anthropology subjects together. And I think maybe that's how I met him. And I became more and more interested in anthropology. And I, I almost became an anthropologist. Um, but in the year when I was doing my honours degree, or just before that, Derrida published a book about Marcel Mauss and the gift. And uh, this book caused me to feel that there was ways of pursuing anthropological questions that I couldn't just do in anthropology. And so then I started to feel like I needed to, to move towards something like philosophy, although in, in fact the, the PhD that I did uh, was in the Department of Political Science at Monash University, but the supervisor that I had, a guy called Michael Yanova, was pretty close to a philosopher himself and a very uh, wise guy. Um, and he, he gave me the space to do what I wanted to do, which then, in fact, shifted away from directly being about the, the Derrida, Mos, uh, Georges Bataille, questions that occupied me in that thesis and became more and more interested in uh, Heidegger. And why that occurred partly was because I felt that, and in some way I think it's perhaps unfair to Derrida, uh, but I felt at that time that in some way questions of temporality and history get suspended in his work. He assumes them, he takes them on board from Heidegger and, and others, but somehow they become sterilized in his work and everything starts to become a little bit timeless. Whereas in Heidegger, I felt there was an attempt to, to pursue the question of, of temporality very far and it seemed important not to, to give that up. Yeah. And and be, and so in that sense, it's not a surprise that I would land on Stiegler, even though that's another story of one accident upon another. <laughs> like um, Peter Lemons also said that he accidentally came upon the work of uh, Stiegler, and that seems to be quite a theme in uh, there. But, but just to do some housekeeping for people who are not familiar with all, all those names. Um, so Derrida is a philosopher who writes about um, uh, language, <clears throat> sorry, language, speech, writing a lot, right? And the relationship yeah. to time. Um, and George Bataille is, I don't really know him so well. So how, how would you summarize his interest? He was a very uh, unusual man uh, who, in fact, for a long time was a librarian in, in Paris, but um, knew people like Walter Benjamin and many other people. Uh, but he was very much a kind of 
French nature, but in the 20th century, uh, who identified himself with nature, but not only with the transgressive nature, but also with the nature of genealogy of, of morals. And, and so he was also a reader of most and anthropology, and in particular in relation to the idea of the gift, which is a fundamental notion in anthropology of gift exchange, uh, but in some way radicalized that idea with his own economic theory. Let's call it that. Uh, in a book called The Accursed Share, which is a very interesting book that uh, tries to think what is the distinction of the economy of the kinds of beings that we are, human beings, uh, in a way that's uh, not like the, the circuits of life of, of other living things. Yeah, so economy, not just in the sense of uh, financial transactions, but also, I guess, social transactions, energy transactions, right? So a very yes. broad uh, understanding of economy and, and human relationships. Yes, and really starting from the sun or the idea of... Uh, yeah. of uh, Which is a, a great connection to Plato's cave, right? Yeah, the sun, mm -hmm. is, the sun has uh, an unlimited amount of energy. Uh, right. So why, uh, you know, <laughs> would be quite interesting in this time where we're very focused on conserving energy i think he's saying the opposite like use it as much as possible spend energy yeah what what he's saying is complex um because it's it's not that he's to me it's not that he's saying you should uh expend as much any energy as possible it's that he's saying uh you have no choice in the sense that uh, whatever calculated economy you create, there'll be something that overflows that. There'll be, there'll, there'll be a surplus energy and you have to make use of it, but you can't make use of it usefully. But nevertheless, you have to make use of it because if you don't make use of it, it will be you'll make use of it destructively. So it's a kind of a, a paradox of energy, I think, that uh, you can never escape this need for a kind of uh, luxuriant expenditure, but at the same time, it's a dangerous expenditure. Because if you don't use that energy, it can start to turn into violence, for instance? Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. It can produce reaction. Yeah. Uh, and, and so then you can connect it to questions of, uh, in his time, the rise of fascism and uh, um, the rise of populism in general and the uh, phenomena of scapegoating and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay, that's George Bataille. And then uh, Derrida was also studying Heidegger and, and I guess gave a different uh, take to it. And then... Stiegler was uh, a student of Derrida. I studied Derrida and built on his work, right? Yes, uh, he he wrote to Derrida 
when I think he was still in prison and didn't expect to hear back because he felt, you know, when you're a prisoner, you can't rely on the outside world. They're not going to help you. But nevertheless, Derrida wrote back, supervised him, and uh, they were very close. Uh, of course, there are many Derridean scholars in the world. Uh, and it seems to me that most of them studiously avoid reading Stephen. <laughs> Yeah, or commenting on his work, and uh, perhaps they feel that Stiegler was somehow an unfaithful son. But I don't think that that's the case at all. Obviously, I have a completely different perspective on it. Uh, for me, the only way to be faithful is to take another step. Yeah. Yes, as far as I'm concerned, from from my position in in philosophy, what what I feel and have felt for a long time is that he is the one who took a step. Yeah, uh, Stigler also writes about uh, in Techniques and Time. He writes about critique, and I think he writes somewhere that, I mean, there's an idea that critique is kind of dismissing something, but he says critique is actually showing respect for something because. You describe, uh, an, he says, an object, but it could be the work of a philosopher, it could be something else, and you describe it, uh, its necessity, but you also describe its limits. And I guess that's where um, it gets tricky when you uh, respect. I mean, personally, I if, if I don't like something, if I read the work of a philosopher or something, if I don't like something, I don't feel I should invest any more energy in it. I wouldn't critique that because I think, yeah, um, I have limited amount of time. I better read a philosopher that I uh, agree with to a certain point, but actually it makes me think, it makes me take another step. And uh, yeah, so I think there's a, there's a different understanding of critique in, in that sense in philosophy, right? As a kind of a respect for a work, but in order to respect it, you also, it's not enough to just become, let's say, a disciple of Derrida of, or of Stiegler or of Heidegger. I think Heidegger also said something like uh, uh, to his students, like, don't hide, don't Heidegger. You shouldn't be Heideggering. Just read yeah. my work, okay, but then do your own thing, right? Right, of course. Uh, a critique is never a denunciation. And what you say is totally true. It's a question of investment. A critique is an investment in the work in which, the, in the work that you are critiquing. And to invest, you have to have a reason to invest. Uh, and a reason is not just a, a logical reason, but a, a reason in the sense of a motive and a desire. And uh, for Stiegler himself, the connection between reason understood as a, a, a form of, of intellectual work, let, let's call it, of, of reasoning, is always connected with the question of the reason for investing in that work. And that investment is 
an expenditure of energy, exactly as you say. Um, uh, so always the question comes back to energy. Yeah, energy. And you also use the word desire because I guess there's something if you if you read a book i mean i just finished one book of stigler in two weeks which i don't recommend but it takes a lot of energy <laughs> um but then i guess i do it because there's something i desire i i want to for instance i want to understand something that could be something right or i want to get clarity on something well maybe i should say something about uh the position of desire in Stigler's work. Yeah, please. Uh, but for instance, uh, it is a difference between him and Derrida in the the place that desire has, the central place that it has in his work. Um, so, so maybe I'll just say some things about uh, how I see Stigler's work in general, and some of them might repeat a little bit uh, what Peter said in in one of your earlier uh, episodes. But I think uh, we can we can add to that on this question. So, a, a lot of the time, when people talk about Bernard Stigler, they call him a, a philosopher of technology, and I don't do that. I call him a philosopher of memory. And that's because what really matters to him is not the fact that the kind of beings that we are create uh, technology. What matters to him, or artifacts, let's say, or as he calls it, organized inorganic matter, or as he also calls it, the pursuit of life by means other than life. What matters is that in it, that when you create an artifact, you create a kind of a memory. Uh, this goes back a couple of million years, something like that, uh, and it's not intended at all when it first begins to occur as a repository of memory in, in any way. It's intended to. Um, pursue life. In other words, to, to make a tool, the idea, the dream, the picture has to arise somehow of the benefit that you're going to be able to get, the animal that you're going to be able to kill, the meat that you're going to be able to cut up, etc., etc. Uh, so you could you could then ask the question, so that means that somebody had to picture it in their head, right? And that's a very easy and obvious step to take because if the creation of a tool, especially for the first time, is something that uh, has never happened before, then in some way there's a, there's a, imagination of what does not exist that then becomes something that does exist and doesn't that therefore mean that it first arises in the brain now what Stigler says is that this is not the right way to look at 
because the rate at which this development of one tool to another or the development of the of the uh, sophistication of tools is so slow the evolution of tools is so slow at that beginning time that it occurs at the same rate as the evolution of the pre-human brain because we're not talking about human beings here we're not talking about homo sapiens and if that's the case then it becomes difficult to say whether it's the brain that's picturing things and changing the tools or whether it's the tool that functions as a kind of mirror which by reflection over the course of hundreds of thousands of years leads to the brain changing now what that really means is that with those changes in the evolu evolution of tools and of the brain there is a kind of suspension of the programs of behavior that existed in the uh, pre-human pre pre the ape the primates prior to this so that that in this suspension uh, begins and then begins to grow because these tools mean that life, even though it's very slowly doing so, begins to change uh, in terms of the, the behaviours that need to be developed to follow this. So there becomes a, a disconnection from biology. So just, just to make sure I understand that part, I can imagine, okay, let's say we... Uh, you start with the flint and, and making a flint into a sharp object, uh, which could be kind of a rudimentary knife to, to kill an animal. But then maybe you start to throw stones or they're already throwing stones. Uh, but you find out that if you connect this uh, flint to a stick, actually you have a spear. And... Um, but in order to have that in, in your society, you need to kind of organize your society around it because you need to be good at throwing it. I mean, we have to, it's an Olympic sport right now. Uh, I don't, it's, is it called spare throwing or it's probably called something yeah. else? Yeah. yeah. So these are kind of skills that you then need to develop in your society. And there will be people that are very good at that. You can practice it, but there are also people who, who are good at making the spares and, and, there are people who are good at preparing the meat and everything like that. So is it so kind of the society changes and also what becomes important in that society? Right. Even uh, maybe you can't use the word society. So today, yeah, I, I heard but, myself saying it, but yeah. But the, the, what you're describing is the necessity of an education of education. some kind. Yeah, yeah. In other words, a transmission between generations that um, reproduces and slowly changes the, the lessons that have been learned about how to live with artifacts and can no longer be uh, timeless lessons, even though for the vast expanse of that time, the, the 
the perception was that these are timeless lessons. Yeah. That, that things don't change. You uh, need to do the same things as, as your father and, and your grandfather. Right. And until not so long ago, uh, this was pretty much the way of thinking. Eh? If you're born, if your father is a peasant, the chances are that your grandfather was one too and that you will be one too and your children will be one too. And this is completely different now. Right. And, and what does now mean in this case? It, it really means since the change of the technical system that brought the industrial revolution. Yeah. Okay. Because this is when the acceleration begins, when it, when it starts to seem that, okay, my children uh, need to learn other lessons than, than I learned. Yeah. Uh, and that acceleration continues. But to go back to, to what I was saying before, so the question then becomes, where does thinking occur? If we call it noesis, let's say, thinking, if it doesn't occur in brains, where does it occur? This is a very unusual question. Mm but it's crucial and it's crucial to avoiding the traps of what Heidegger called metaphysics, even though he didn't say it in this way. But Husserl was a, a philosopher who uh, was before Heidegger for whom the question of where are the ideas was a real question as well. And what Stiegler says is that we have to ask this question because it's in the dynamic between our, our artifacts and the evolution of our artifacts and our minds and our societies and the evolution of our minds and our societies in between those places that thinking really occurs. Uh, in other words, if you don't have those artifacts, you can't think those thoughts. Mm. Uh, as an example that he gives in one of his books, there are many, many societies that never thought a concept of 1,000. Very few did. And what made it possible to think the concept of 1,000 was the representation of what 1,000 means in symbolic form, in other words, in writing, diagrams and writing. I think we can picture only like three, four, five. I think five is maybe the yeah, maximum, right. right? One, two, three, a lot. You know. Yeah. <laughs> That's normal. Uh, even though, you you know, you think, well, 10 is so natural. Okay, but not, nothing really is natural. What is natural for us? Mm -hmm. Nothing. And so... If you accept the idea that the evolution of techniques brings about a kind of suspension of programs, of behavioral programs, which are themselves forms of memory that are transmitted genetically, and if you accept that, what replaces that is an is a evolution of thinking that 
doesn't just occur in brains, and you can never think about it as just occurring in brains, then you have a way of taking a step past those debates that have uh, occupied 2,000 years of philosophy between idealism and materialism or transcendentalism and empiricism. It's a step. For me, it's a real step. Which, in, in, uh, a, in a nutshell, that would be, does knowledge come from thinking or does it come from uh, examining the world out there? That's, I mean, I'm simplifying it a lot, but is that kind of the difference that the debate is? Like uh, Plato, in, Plato's, in Plato's cave, uh, you would need to go first to the world, outside of this world, to the world of forms. Remember that? Uh, right, Socrates uh, interrogates or asks questions, and then by those questions, you remember the knowledge that you already have in your mind, and because and through that knowledge, you can have uh, wisdom in in society. And another right, way right. would be that that you need to do, let's say, you need to do science, you need to do experiments, you need to learn from experience. Uh, from right. talking to people, from looking at, well, we had a whole episode about is the earth round or flat? Well, the way you find out about that is to do experiments and to, to trust your senses. And another way to, to think about it in the history of philosophy would be to say, okay, uh, idealism is a very strong idea. Hmm. Philosophy. Uh, say in modern philosophy, Kant and Hegel, um, have very good arguments for saying that you know you have no access to anything except through ideas. Yeah. You don't have direct access. You only have access through through the the apparatus of ideas that 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 makes it possible for you to apprehend. And Karl Marx comes along and says this is upside down because like Stiegler, he says that it's the, the evolution of the material forces, in other words, techniques, technology, that makes it possible for those ideas to arise, not the other way around. Yeah. What Stiegler will say is this is still an opposition that Karl Marx is living in here between ideas and matter. And, and what he forgets or what he doesn't know or doesn't recognize is what you can see in Plato, the idea that the artifact is a memory, not just matter. It's a retention. It keeps something in it, and because it keeps something in it, it keep it is the it is the source of ideas, as materialism will say. But it's also where we project our ideas onto. And so, matter is not just matter; it's what Stigler will call hypermatter. Uh, but in any case, putting the philosophy to one side for a minute. If it's true what I say, that Stiegler is a philosopher of memory, not of technology, 
of retention, then this is not just because uh, we can store knowledge in books and uh, cave paintings and, and even in flint tools that were not designed to keep knowledge but nevertheless accidentally do so, the, the significance of it is not just that it keeps the knowledge, but that it becomes the source of new projections. In other words, new dreams and new desires. So to going back to what we said about the very first tools, that you had to dream a possibility, a new world that could come if you had this artifact, what you could do. You had to have a picture in your mind of something that doesn't exist but that could become real. Then this is always a question of the relationship to the future, which means a question of anticipation, of expectation, and of desire, and of reason. So techniques is not just a question of memory. It's always a question of of the relationship between memory and desire. And it is the history, the changing history of, the, of those techniques of memory that produces a changing history of the techniques of the liberation of desire, the control of desire, or the destruction of desire. And what Stiegler really argues is that for a very long time, the techniques of memory that prevailed, especially in the West, in what you could call is the Western process of individuation, the, the techniques of memory that prevailed was writing. And writing produced uh, all kinds of negative and positive possibilities. But and it produced the, the world of the Industrial Revolution and it produced, therefore, the world of Karl Marx. But what Karl Marx didn't see was that the techniques of memory, and he didn't see it because for him techniques isn't firstly a question of memory, would continue to change. After his death, you have the invention of the telegraph, the gramophone, the radio, the cinema, the television, and the computer. All of these are techniques of memory. All of them produce great transformations of the way in which uh, society is organized to, to live with these techniques. But they also, and fundamentally, lead to new processes and ways of generating, producing, controlling, and destroying desire. And the 20th century is the century of the learning by capitalism of how to take control of desire because the real energy of capitalism is not just what you get from the steam engine, it's the libidinal energy that is the driver of what Max Weber called the spirit of capitalism, but in taking control of this energy, 
strangely enough, it depletes and undermines the same energy and therefore depletes and undermines the conditions of its own existence. And that's the real um, contradiction at the heart of 20th century capitalism. Yeah. So capitalism, the intention is that we all can have a four-hour work week and enjoy the benefits of uh, all the abundance that we have and live in lecture luxury. I think maybe that's kind of an ideal and everybody can make it. So no matter where you are born, uh, you can be, uh, if you, if you just work hard enough, if you use the skills that you have, you can, you can have success in this world. But at the same time, if we look around us now, then, okay. So there's first the desire for, um objects so first there's a desire maybe for food and and capitalism is a system that can make sure that that people have food but then uh you also get other things like cigarettes or something like that so you start to have people start to have desires for something that they couldn't that they didn't picture in their mind and now capitalism provides it but now it's it's another question where the desire is is not even you don't even get a cigarette. It's just trying to maximize the time that you spend on Facebook, uh, kind of uh, an economy of desire. Where yeah, the key point that you made is the last one: amount of time. The real question of capitalism is a question of time. It used to be that society was organized on a on the idea of a timeless foundation which was a theological foundation and of course is very unjust world etc etc but in that world there was the idea of an infinity and that for a class of people it was necessary for them to be liberated from those questions of subsistence that you mentioned, getting enough food, and which as soon as you have artifacts, the question of organizing hierarchies is unavoidable. You, you have, that is the beginning of the division of, of work into the division of society and the division of work. Like the person who makes the spare and the person who throws it and the person who prepares the food. Right. And, yeah. the, and the shaman and the priest and yeah. so on. And so in the... And the person who teaches others how to do all those things because he's good at teaching. Right. And yeah. the person who, who can't, as Woody Allen said, the person who isn't good at teaching teaches sport. But... Uh, <laughs> uh, before capitalism, you had monasteries, and in and those monasteries have are a space where it is possible to devote time to those infinite things beyond the finite needs of subsistence, mm -hmm. contemplation of of God, and this is the difference between. Otium and negotium. Otium is that time that is free to pursue the real work. 
And negotium is the time that is not that, that is the time of subsistence. And that is the word from which we get negotiation, business, etc. Yeah. What capitalism is from the beginning is the idea that negotium should conquer otium. That the time of business should should progressively eat into every space of uh, of free time. Because and free time is then seen as time where you don't produce anything, basically wasted time. Right, and this is what uh, what Max Faber talks about, and and talks about the difficulty of that at, in the beginning of capitalism because. Uh, there was the idea that, well, if we pay higher wages, people will work harder. But in fact, the discovery was you pay them more, they they will want to work less because they they have got what they need for the, for the life that they want to live and prefer to keep their time rather than to gain. And a lot of a lot of work had to be done by capitalism to to create the new spirit as Weber calls it, the new spirit that wants to always devote every minute to productivity. Um, and in that, that is 19th century story. But in the 20th century, that conquest continues, and it continues into what people think of as leisure time. But leisure time is not free time, because leisure time is the that becomes the new market that is conquered. And this is the beginning of uh, the transformation of capitalism. That means that it's focused less on the production uh, of, of goods that, that uh, meet the needs of subsistence and far more focused on the production of, of consumer life the life of leisure time uh, and conquering that time, in other words, transforming the desire of consumers to want to fill it with the products of capitalism. Yeah. And how does it do that? Through the memory technologies that developed in the 20th century, that is radio and television. Okay, well, we've gotten quite deep into uh, <laughs> the the philosophy uh, and of techniques of uh, the philosophy of man memory, as you say. Um, can we just we will come back to it? But uh, because I'm still interested in how you came from, okay, you came from physics to philosophy uh, to Heidegger in in a political department. So your 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 PhD thesis was about Heidegger and uh, politics. Um, and I saw some uh, quotations, some references to Stiegler in your PhD thesis. And I think that was also the time that you made the ISTER, right? So how, yeah. how did that happen? Okay, well, um, the thesis that I, that I did, uh, that I ended up doing was about two of the courses given by Heidegger, the 1924 course on Plato's Sophist, and a lot of that is also about Aristotle, uh, and which is a very interesting course, which for a long time was not published even in German, 
but there were many, there were reports of the content of this, uh, especially in terms of what it said about Aristotle and uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics and how that translates into Heidegger's own work was subject of many papers that had been and books that had been written prior to my PhD. And then those guesses got to be tested by the appearance of the work itself. And it seemed to me that, that the lecture course was far deeper and more interesting than all of the guesses about how, how Aristotle corresponds uh, to Heidegger. But the reason I mention it is because a lot of those guesses were to say that Heidegger uh, really has a fixation with Sophia, with the timeless wisdom, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really not the case. Uh, the whole of the lecture course is a rumination, or a whole of that long part of the lecture course on the relationship uh, between different those different virtues. And it's not at all the case that... Uh, that Dasein somehow has this bias towards this ontological uh, virtue in Aristotle. That's how it seems to me. Not everybody got it totally wrong, but but the people who wanted to to link Heidegger's thought to his Nazism mostly got it wrong. That's how I felt at the time. And the other one, the other lecture course that I looked at was the one from 1942, which happens to be the one on, on the Easter, Hördelin's poem. And then um, a friend of mine, uh, David Barrison, proposed, I won't tell the whole story, but he proposed, he proposed making a film together related to philosophy, and I came up with this idea of, of, going to Europe and, and making this film around this poem. It's true what you say, that there are references to Stiegler in that PhD, but I would say that at the time that I was working on the PhD, I didn't understand Stiegler. I didn't understand that uh, he really took a step. I saw him as a really good reader of Derrida and Heidegger. But why did I have that limitation? I had it because, like many of the people who still read Stiegler today, they only know about philosophy. But to read Stiegler, you have to know about André Laragoron, you have to know about Bertrand Gilles. At that time, nobody knew about Gilbert Simondon, nobody that I knew. All these um, French thinkers, right? Because the, the first volume of Techniques and Time, the second part is about a lot about Heidegger, but the first part is uh, a lot about yeah. these anthropologists and these kind of philosophical archaeologists. anthropologists. Yeah, archaeologists, yes. yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> I was one of those people who went straight for the philosophy. Yeah. I didn't give enough consideration because it's in that first part where you can see where he takes a new step. Um, and uh, it was 
uh, I'll explain the story of of when I recognized that that this was not enough. After we made the film, we were invited to Marseille. And in Marseille, Stiegler was also invited and for a screening of the film. And you interview him in the, few, in the film, and we haven't mentioned that, but you right, interview yes. him in the film. And yeah. he's really the star of the film yeah. for me. He gives a great performance. He was really, at that time, he knew exactly what he was doing and how to do it. Uh, and he made the film. The film, the Easter would not be the Easter without Stigler. It would be, he was a, and he was incredibly generous as well. Everybody else said, okay, uh, anybody else in this movie? I say, oh, yeah, Stigler. Oh, okay, Stigler's in it. Okay, well, in that case, but but he was he was just great. Yeah, um, what what I noticed about just about if I remember the film correctly, most of the others that you interview there are it's kind of traditional documentary talking heads more. But he, for instance, he explains the story of uh, Epimetheus and Prometheus. But he takes a bucket. Uh, he shows you around. Uh, there's, you know, kind of more. Uh, uh, how do you a tour guide? I would say. Yeah, no. it was a it was a great moment uh, where it was the right time for him. I think, yeah. and he knew he was totally open, really. To when we made the film, we we decided it's not going to be traditional talking, even though you say it's traditional, it's not traditional in the sense that we let them talk as long as they want. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't really, of course, there's some editing, but, but, and there's a lot of editing, uh, maybe more editing than any other film ever made. The amount of editing in that film took years, but, but nevertheless, they, we gave them the time to pursue something over a long period and tried to make that cinematic. And he was he was the one who gave us the best chance to do that. Uh, but in Marseille, when we made the movie, we didn't know about him being in prison. At that time, it wasn't public knowledge. But he told the story over a dinner that we took him to, and, and so we understood the possibility of making another film existed about him, about his life. And we began to translate for research, only for research, the book, the little, very little book that now makes up the first half of Acting Out that uh, describes his transformation in prison. And that book, also has a second part that is a very between those two little tiny little books it's a very distilled account of his um, political philosophy let's say his account of contemporary of the contemporary uh, malaise and what needs to be done uh, extremely powerful for me and at the same time that this was occurring, I began to run a performing arts school 
with my girlfriend, who was uh, who is a dancer, uh, mainly a dancing school for children. And a lot of what Stiegler is saying in those books is about the destruction of the relationship between the generations and uh, the way in which this destruction involves a destruction of knowledge and desire. While I'm translating these books and the later ones too, I'm also, I'm in the dancing studio watching the transmission between the generations in a way that is very, very different from institutional schooling. And those differences have everything to do with what Stiegler was talking about. And between those events in the constellation of that, that translation and that process of education that I'm observing, that very singular process of education, it, it became obvious to me not only that Stiegler is, makes a step past Derrida, as I said, which I haven't explained what I mean by that, but, but nevertheless, it's what I think, and is also not just a philosopher at all. He's a man who sees what's the real issue of today and why sees why nobody else can see what the problem is. Yeah. So what is that? As I said to you, the tech, techniques of memory that suspends the biological programs of our existence means that we have to cultivate our relationship to those artifacts, to technological objects, and our relationship to each other in technological society or technical society. And therefore, that we need intergenerational transmission to occur and to occur with a dynamism that means that it adjusts to technical change. And mostly that happens below the surface. And then there's some kind of shock because there's a, a large change to the technical system or, or some kind of limit is reached and things start to dysfunction. And that dysfunction becomes the dynamism of a, of a new step in, in the cultivation of knowledge and, and ways of living. But at the same time, the techniques of memory is what Stiegler calls pharmacological, getting it from Derrida and getting it from Socrates. In other words, it can also sterilize, become dogma, it can sterilize knowledge, turn it into dogma, prevent the transformation, prevent the dynamism that needs to occur. You, there's no escape from this because it's only through the, the techniques of memory that the possibility of taking the new step exists. So and this is a question of a leap. 
Yeah. So this point, um, uh, technology techniques is something that that allows us to take a new step, but at the same time, it also has uh, well. If you say pharmacological, it's like a, it can be a, a potion, it can be curative, but it can also be a uh, poison, right? Which was Socrates' issue about writing. Yeah, I, I always think about maybe this is too simple, but I always think about if. You give me your phone number. I write it down on a piece of paper. Because I write it down, I don't. I don't. I'm not busy with remembering it. So if I lose the piece of paper, uh, let's say most of uh, another more modern example is that I think most people the phone numbers, the important phone numbers that they have, even the phone number of their wife or of their mother, are in their phone right now. So if your phone crashes, maybe you're not able to call your them anymore. Right. Well, that's that's exactly what Socrates says. That's, Not about smartphones, but about uh, <laughs> this is this is why yeah. uh, he's he's relevant today, and why yeah. you need need Socrates today is because he did think that. Why did he think that? What made it possible for him to think that? Uh, this is a question of the sophist of sophism. Uh, and the way we should think about it is in ancient Greece, they had a crisis. There is what Dodds called the inherited conglomerate, which is the, the inherited understandings, myths, meanings of those past timeless generations suddenly starts to be called into question. And it's called into question why? Because writing starts to become a generalized uh, ability. And this changes the conditions of the inheritance of that past. And it leads to all kinds of ruptures. And so, for instance, it's why you have Cleisthenes needing to reorganize uh, how the clans um which becomes corrupt uh a new to con finally convinces everybody to adopt a new system of categorization disconnected from those past generations in order to reinvigorate a system that had that had become stale and corrupt because uh, I, but I many other changes as well no. No, i guess in in uh if you the myths and the, the kind of educational stories that were being told at the time about how to organize society, but also about what is virtue, how how you, sh how you should behave in life, they're passed on through narratives, so telling stories. And right. I think every time you tell a story, you kind of adapt it. But you also, in this ad adaptation of a story, you also incorporate maybe more modern features you try to like if i tell the story tell, tell a story to my daughter sometimes i try to incorporate things that happened to her during the day so that's kind of a i don't want to say natural but there was at the time there was maybe a difference in when you have a story that you tell and you can you can rearrange it subtly subtly i don't know how to say that to fit 
the needs at the time and when it's written down and and it's just that's how it is the words are there on the paper you don't change the words there it's yeah, just it's a little bit more complicated because uh in fact i think uh oral transmission has its own techniques yeah okay. and uh and what i mean is that there can be ways of composing a, an orally transmitted story uh saga let's say um that is engineered in the way you speak it to function as reminders hmm. it goes like this then this then this if this has happened then so that it's uh you can you can have incredible consistency of how you tell those stories um which but, you know might might take two weeks to tell the story yeah but you it can get passed on with a lot of consistency but only because knowledge of the of those techniques is itself cultivated and passed on and once writing begins to dominate then those those uh, oral techniques start to fall into into disuse and i think this is what bartok really uh, had a hand in discovering just how effective these techniques could be um even and lasting even until the 20th century but at the same time what you're saying is true that they they're not exact they're not perfect they they might be very good but they're not the same thing as being able to say i can take plato off this shelf here yeah and it's identical to what it was two and a half thousand years ago and it's not a question so yes this exactitude becomes the basis of the okay we have to say say this one might think that exactitude is what makes uh, things lose their vitality and plato kind of said this too yeah. but the other side of it is that exactitude the fact that you can repeat you can read it again and read it again and read it again and it's exact every time in fact is what opens the possibility through the fact that when i read it again the experience that i have is not identical to the to the previous time that i read it yeah. and therefore i can notice the difference and begin to make an interpretation and yeah. therefore exactitude is a is a dynamic factor of interpretation and not just of my interpretation compared to my previous reading but my interpretation compared to your interpretation so this is a what produces a real crisis at the time of the polis of ancient greece of socrates so that, so because i i still don't quite understand what i what you just said i link that to when you say techniques is necessary to take a next step so um having something let's say inscribed in the material world allows us to come back to it and perhaps develop it further um and and take a next step uh 
I also get the part that maybe uh, those new kind of uh, any technology, any new technology will also have um, a, a, a maybe a negative effect as well, can have a negative effect, like you forget things, for instance, or you lose uh, abilities that you had before. But why did that produce a crisis? In, uh, I mean, the, the way you talk about it, I think it's also a political crisis, right? About how to organize society, not just a crisis from some philosophers talking to each other and they can figure something out, but something in the society changed. Right, because uh, what is inherited becomes able to be put in question in a, in a precise way. And, um, and you, because you can go back to it, yeah. It's not moving. It's still it's it's spatialized, and you can argue about what's down, what's being put down. Which uh, lawyers do basically? I mean, that's the, in in Plato's allegory of the cave. That's the example he uses about people, uh, judges and lawyers, and people quibbling about the law, right? About what is justice there. Right. Uh, what's interesting about the figure of Socrates is that. On the one hand, he is the embodiment of, and the embodiment as the inaugurator of philosophy, the embodiment of calling previous assumptions into question and to say, do we really know what we think we know? And so he's the embodiment of what I just said as a challenge to the inherited conglomerate. But at the same time, He's still in that world. This is what Stigler wants to insist as well. He's still in that world of myths. He's still in that world of telling stories. And when it becomes necessary to really uh, try to take a step that's difficult, that's the point at which uh, Socrates will invoke some, something from myth because he's still there in that world. And what that means is he's still there in the tragic world. In other words, the world of mortals and not the world of everlasting souls and the ideas in another realm. So for Stiegler, it's important to make a distinction between Socrates and Plato and to say that over the course of the Platonic uh, corpus, the figure of Socrates that Plato describes shifts from being the one who calls into question to becoming the one who sets the new criterion of politics, say. And uh, this is really Plato's shift. And it's and in this way, Stiegler is following Heidegger in seeing the, the shift to what Heidegger would call metaphysics in Plato. But the difference is that for Stiegler, the 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 key point is the shifting attitude towards writing. Yeah, so so in, in many of the early, of course, we only know Socrates through a large part through Plato's dialogues, but 
a lot of the early dialogues speak about what is what is X, what is justice, what is what is friendship, right. but they end <laughs> in well, calling into question. But then, for instance, the one about friendship ends with, I think, oh, we have to go to our next appointment and uh, we don't really know what friendship is. But then the Republic, uh, Plato's work, later work, uh, which also, of course, features Socrates and uh, the cave allegory of this podcast, that's kind of outlining how should we organize society? What is, what is the difference between sophistry and philosophy? Uh, what is the role of the philosopher? What is the role of... Uh, so that's kind of a difference of saying, well, let's question things and maybe end our discussion with, oh, so actually we thought we knew something, but we don't. And, and what Plato is doing, right? Right. And it's also where, where uh, you begin to get those uh, unsocratic ideas, let's say, about the ideas about where the ideas are uh, that begin to become uh, seen in an oppositional way as, you know, in the cliched presentation, of course, more complex than this, but that the, the ideas are more real than the real. This kind of, which is the origin of the idealism that I talked about. And, and it's still a powerful idea, but it's, it begins to be seen in oppositional terms, where the the world of of becoming, of of change, of techniques, is not real. Only, only the timeless world is real, and yeah, yeah. it's only in the nineteenth century that this really uh, flips around. And but flipping it around maintains the opposition. Yeah. So flipping it around means that actually. You, you're saying no, the the changing world of technology that is more real than than the ideal work world. I mean, right. I think which, someone, yeah, which becomes ideology for Kant, for Marx. You know, the German ideology yeah. is a, is by ideology he means German idealism. Yeah. So. Um, Sorry, do, not to interrupt you, you, you were going somewhere with, you were, so we were talking about the crisis through, in part through writing that, that uh, was there in ancient Greece. Um, I guess there, I mean, I, I just have, I have a number of thoughts, so you can see which one you take to, <laughs> which path you take, right? <laughs> we, okay. So. Um, one thing I, I thought about is, okay, what if uh, I think you, you write also in the introduction to the Negantropocene that, that what, one of the things that you want from a philosopher is that they comment on the age in which they're living, um, uh, preferably, and, and that very much connects to um, uh, Stigler's Techniques in Time, the, the fourth part, which he, I think he, he inserted it, and it's a lot about, actually, it's about Trump. It's about 9/11. It's about he, he talks about those things, the the post-truth world. So I think there's there's a difference in um, how we see an, a philosopher as as philosophizing about eternal values. What is you know mind? What is matter? And all those things. 
and how you explained it before is that Stigler is saying, well, actually, you you can only do philosophy in relation to the the technical world or the the epoch or the paradigm that you live in, and this means that you that Marx couldn't Marx couldn't have known all those things because he wasn't alive when the internet was there. But when the internet is there, you need to do. Uh, it's the job of a philosopher to think about this, the, the internet, and the, but also the newest discoveries in, in physics and all those kind of things. So it's kind of, that's the first part, a relationship between the philosopher and time. The other part is about, um, so you, in your PhD, you, you studied Plato's sophist and, and in, the, in the episode about flat earth uh, and science denial, we also talked about sophistry which very much relates also to this <laughs> volume of, of Stiegler about uh, post-truth, about the idea that um, if we talk about techniques of speech, it's, it's more important to convince somebody than to speak the truth. And Stiegler talk, also talks about the courage, that what we need now is kind, a kind of courage to speak the truth or to be interested in the truth. Uh, okay, let me think how to approach this. Um, the, there are a lot of people today who would say that we've thought enough. The time of thinking is over and yeah, the time right. of acting yeah. has begun. And if we keep thinking any longer, then all we will do is assure the the outcome because thinking is slow and time is short and even a lot of even some philosophers will say this and i think it's totally wrong to say that and but then it, the it's up to me to justify that yeah. and to make an argument why uh, we still need philosophy and what that means and what philosophy can do. And, and you have to say, to start out with, that most of what philosophy does is completely useless. <laughs> uh, and the accusations that are thrown at it are produced by its own uselessness uh, because it is subject to the same pharmacological characteristics as anything else and can become stale, can become dogmatic, can become empty, can become lazy, uh, can become simply... Uh, Racist, uh, all yeah, those kind of things. Yeah. Just uh, uh, a bureaucracy or an institution that takes care of itself etc yeah. uh, etc et and one of the reasons is what you said before that we go to the part of technics and time one that's about Heidegger because we don't understand who are these archaeologists and that's all that science is far away from philosophy for me and it's too hard uh, I have to stick with what I know I've received this. In other words, the education that you receive that makes you into 
somebody who calls themselves a philosopher can be the very thing that narrows you uh, because of specialization that's a fundamental part of the academic system that we live in today. And nevertheless, you have to say it makes no sense to live in the 21st century and do philosophy without knowing and thinking and reflecting and taking new steps and creating new concepts in relation to uh, science, archaeology, human evolution, technology, and the transformations that all of that has brought, not to mention politics. But politics is not enough either. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to say, I am commenting on Trump. So you have to, I have to then justify all of that, which I would do in the following way. Um, For what I was going to say before that I didn't say is that what Stiegler argues is that because technology is really about retention, that is memory, and what retention makes possible, that is dreams and desires. And because those memory technologies are pharmacological, it's always the case that new memory technologies create new possibilities for the cultivation of knowledge, which ultimately means ways of living with the pharmaca that are artifacts and living together with other people in the world of those pharmaca and artifacts. And at the same time, destroys knowledge or produces a tendency towards the destruction of knowledge. And if this is what Socrates was saying about writing, when he said exactly as you said, that once I start to rely on writing, I stop relying on my own ability, and therefore I stop cultivating my own ability to remember, which is, which is to say my own ability to know, then that's why Stiegler will say that Socrates was the first thinker of proletarianization. For Stiegler, proletarianization means the destruction of knowledge. And in the 19th century, there's a whole new process of the destruction of knowledge that begins to occur and that Marx describes. And what is it? It's when the gestures of the worker are programmed into the machine. So instead of the worker knowing how to use a a tool that means that they can weave, a mechanical loom takes that knowledge and turns it into information. And just as I said, the the ability to um, understand how to use memory technologies orally disappears with writing, so too the ability to weave, et cetera, et cetera, falls into oblivion as machines take over, also powered by the, by the 
steam engine, etc. Of course. Um, in other words, knowledge has a history, but in the 19th century, this destruction enters a new phase and becomes much more powerful. And if Stiegler says that we live in a hyper-industrial age rather than, as some people have said, a post-industrial age, it's because we have the industrialization of memory starting at that time. Um, now, the 19th century also is the century of the rise of the press agency and the newspaper, which for Hegel was the beginning of a modern ritual. In other words, he saw the positive side of this newspaper, which obviously is a, has many positive sides. One of those positive sides is the development of the idea of a public of opinion. For which newspapers uh, are a crucial tool by having writers who are cultivated in the in the creation of opinion, opinion not just as a perspective, but opinion as a as a way of taking a position on on the world. And yet, at the same time, the the rise of press agencies is a rise of a new kind of market, a market in information, information that somebody has and that is valuable to them as long as they have it and somebody else doesn't have it. Once everybody has that information, it loses its value. This is not the case for knowledge. Knowledge can be enriched by being shared. It doesn't lose value. But a newspaper that's two days old is completely worthless. It's worthless unless it becomes a document of some other knowledge process. But as a information repository, it loses its value very quickly. And so this 19th century is the century of the, of the creation of a public of opinion, but also the century of, of a, a market of information. And in the 20th century and the 21st century, we can see how those develop very, those tendencies develop in uh, very powerful ways. And what we see, the problem with saying something like that uh, people today don't rely on facts, they need to be given the facts, or we need to have a fact checker, or an organization of fact checking, is it doesn't ask the question, why does this thought that we need to have a fact checker arise today? And one of the key reasons it arises today is because opinion is destroyed. There is no opinion which means the cultivation of organs, of, in, of instruments and institutions, newspapers and so on, that have a kind of uh, authority that means that people consider them worth the effort 
of investing their time in. All of that is destroyed, especially with the rise of the internet, which was disastrous for newspapers, and which forced them all to take more and more steps to, to take advantage of the market of, it, of information above all else. But information is uh, totally pharmacological. Information is not the same thing as knowledge and it's not the same thing as truth. So a fact checker is a symptom of a destruction that, that is itself uh, a reactive phenomenon. Uh, and that's why fact checkers very often, in, in fact, themselves can become an, uh, a new kind of scapegoater because there's a third dimension to pharmacology. It's not just a question of the positive side of the pharmacon and the negative side of the pharmacon. The third dimension is the pharmacos. And so when the crisis of the polis happened, it wasn't just that there was a, a crisis that played out around the, the positive and negative sides of the pharmacon of writing. It was also the case that a reaction to the one who was putting into question a political reaction arose that meant that Socrates was condemned to drink the hemlock. In the, in the same way today, information technologies, network technologies, computer technologies that destroy every kind of knowledge vastly more rapidly than anything Socrates could ever have dreamed of, produces crises that are not just about the positive and negative side of the pharmacon, but about the production of new kinds of scapegoats. And this is why I think it's really important to say this. In 2012 or 2013, Stiegler wrote a book called Pharmacology du Front National, Pharmacology of the National Front. In other words, about the far-right party in France, which at that time he saw as um, growing because uh, it, there arose uh, an election in which um, the socialists didn't get into the runoff. Uh, and he's, what was his, this message, he, this book was written in part to be read by politicians mm. and other intellectuals and representatives and blah, blah, blah. And what he said in that book was what we must not do is make a scapegoat of the people who were attracted to scapegoats, yeah. to scapegoats. So one other example comes to mind is when Hillary Clinton called Trump followers uh, deplorables. Right. So that could be an American example. And I think in the Netherlands, we had Pim Fortuyn. I don't know if you, um, yeah. this was the, one of the first, uh, I would say Trumpist, but that's kind of, you know, it was before Trump. But he was 
uh, scapegoated, um, demonized by by left politician, and he was he was he was killed. Uh, he was murdered because of well, I wouldn't say because of that, but there was a climate around right. that. Yeah, it's in other words when you get caught up in the logic of the pharmacos, it can have all kinds of strange twists and turns. Uh, and in and the one key point here is that this book is one of the only ones that didn't get translated into English. <laughs> uh, I was going to translate it into English uh, 2013, but the publisher said this book is too much about French politics. Yeah, it's of no interest to to the rest to the English speaking world. It's not not important to them because it's this pharmacology of the National Front is too French, too local. Yes, but it is the exact phenomenon that took over. Uh, the whole world in oh. 2016, and which could have been seen coming, and where the this lesson that uh, to scapegoat the voters who are drawn into the stupidity of scapegoating can only produce greater reactions, and and. It's not just a question of Hillary Clinton. The entire of the Trump presidency yeah. was a vast example of that uh, by the media more than by anybody else, and partly because the, as a market of information, they had a lot to gain from, from that reaction and counter-reaction, and also because of the, the structure of, of the platforms through which um, the algorithmic technologies of the social media operate uh, exacerbate those, those tendencies and exacerbate the reduction of all knowledge to the, to the most reduced forms of information. Yeah. In other words, uh, the problem that we have today that philosophers have to have an answer to if they aren't going to be completely useless is to propose an alternative. It means nothing to resist. Resistance is... Uh, a terrible concept, a terrible word, and a terrible kind of politics because it, it it is the acceptance of the unchangeability of a situation from the perspective of resentment. This is a, impossible to produce something positive from resistance. The reliance on resistance largely comes from the incapacity of, let's say, intellectuals who, whatever you want to call them, people on Twitter, um, to propose an alternative. 
if you haven't got an alternative to propose, you're not adding anything. Mm-hmm. So from my perspective, this means that philosophy has to be the beginning of a new type of political and economic thinking and fundamentally one that does not avoid the fact that uh, crucial to our contemporary crisis is the proletarianization, that is the destruction of knowledge and the destruction of desire that has uh, continued to decimate the uh, relations between the generations. If you can't produce an, uh, an alternative politics and economics, or let's say a political economy, then you can't affect this situation. But is this different? has something to say. Yeah, but is this different from what Plato did with the Republic, where he, I mean, at that point he was opposed to democracy and he, there he proposes as a philosopher a different way of organizing society, which looking back at it, um, I think can be called uh, ideological or at least uh, by interpreters afterwards, right? So how, how do you do as a philosopher, you can kind of dream up a utopia but how do you, is this different from creating an ideology? Okay, so let's say, what are the, what are the aspects of ideology? The aspects of ide- ideology really are, one, the denial of the primordial technicity of, uh, of our existence, which, yes, so in Republic, this is what Plato does. Two, denial of the pharmacological character uh, of, of this, which is done by uh, creating an oppositional logic and then siding with one side or the other. And three, by denying the, the third dimension, the relationship to scapegoating. Yes, you can say Republic is an ideological text in the sense that it conforms to these three characteristics. So when you when you propose an alternative, what I mean is one that is remains tragic in the Socratic sense that it understands that the pharmacological character is irreducible that you can never escape the risks of the negative tendency, the risks of, of, the, of producing reactions and scapegoats and resentments and so on, but that operates through the awareness of those risks to keep producing uh, new alternatives. What does that really mean today? If you recognize 
that the pharmacological character of information technologies has become largely negatively pharmacological in the sense that uh, the foundations of an idea of truth are so undermined that people think that we live in post-truth, that knowledge of all kinds is depleted and destroyed, that uh, all kinds of will and desire is, is, has become problematic, uh, life has become difficult and um, lonely and so on, and that the technologies of calculation applied to the creation of markets has everything to do with this, then what it means is that we need a new relationship. Either, either you believe that we need to um, escape industrialization, which is the position of somebody like Theodore Kaczynski, that the only way is to um, destroy the whole technical system. And it's the position of people who, who believe in some smaller scale version of that. They want to live in their own little world of safety. Do you mean like, least, like people say, go, yeah, going off grid, uh, going yeah. into a community and renouncing kind of the internet and technology? And uh, yeah. Yes. At least Theodore Kaczynski was consistent in his willingness to face the whole picture. Uh, either you believe that, or you say the future for us is industrial. And if the future for us is industrial, then it's a question of the creation of a new kind of industrialization. What kind of industrialization? The, the key point is that is to remember that it's not that memory technologies destroy knowledge and desire. It's that memory technologies always have the tendency to destroy knowledge and desire, but at the same time to create it. And it's how we organize in relation to those possibilities that makes the difference. And the difference that we have to make is to reorganize our economy so that it is no longer based on remunerating the destruction of knowledge and desire. How do you do that? Nobody has the answer. I don't have the answer. Bernard Stiegler didn't have the answer. But the answer that he did have was this. No matter how short the time scale that we have in order to make that difference, what we need is a bridge between the, the lack of alternative that we all suffer from now and the macroeconomic transformation that would be necessary to escape from this Anthropocene. And therefore, what we need is medium-scale experiments that will be capable of generating new models and alternatives. And what the priority 
the value of values has to be that animates the creation of those experiments is the value of the production and diversification of knowledge and desire rather than their destruction. That should be the basis. Yeah, because just to, we earlier we talked about economy. Economy is not just finance. I mean, I guess that's the capitalist idea of economy just being purely about transactions and, and I mean, financial transactions, transactions well, of goods. Look, the idea of capitalism is investment. The idea of capitalism is that uh, by investing your time, your effort, uh, and your money, that that reward will come, right? But is that the world that we live in? Do we live in the world of investment? To a large extent, capitalism itself has fallen victim to the destruction of the knowledge and, de and desire that's necessary in order to invest well. And what it re becomes replaced with is speculation, which is not investment. And uh, it that destruction of knowledge and desire has everything to do with the destruction of the time scales of the relationship to the future. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, it's the case that a, a uh, investment bank may decide to shift to a, a building that's, you know, 500 meters closer to the stock exchange because the, the shorter wires between there and there mean that they get, you know, a, a thousandth of a second advantage, which is what they can exploit algorithmically. Now, on the one hand, you can make money. On the other hand, this is not a model. It functions as long as it functions until it stops. Yeah, I'm also thinking about your uh, old college buddy, I guess, uh, Dominic Petman's book, uh, Peak Libido. Uh, where he also talks about um, kind of these kinds of experiments also uh, they can be kind of social experience like a group medium-sized group uh, experiments so not just it's not just about um, uh, let, let's say formal organizations but also also about on the level of communities right is that is that also what you're thinking of or are you thinking of kind of i would say a top-down approach where where you need to think of a kind of way of organizing society or systems or is is it something that both. it's both you let me say this it's a mistake another opposition that it's a mistake to make is the opposition between the bottom up and the top down yeah and it's an and it is a mistake that is made for instance, by uh, by a lot of left movements that embrace the idea of bottom-up without top-down. Top-down, it becomes the enemy. This can get you nowhere. What matters is the relationship between the bottom-up and the top-down. That's a dynamic process. And what does top-down mean then? It means, for instance, peer review. It means the idea that there is a, a structure of authority of claims. And if we live in a post-truth world, it's because all of those top-down um, structures have all been invalidated together and become a source of distrust together. But without 
without uh, any certification process, mm-hmm. then you you are opening up to a kind of uh, to the kind of vacuum that used to used to plague communes that would run on consensus where there's no basis for for making a decision and what ends up is a default that somebody takes power yeah because you're always operating within a power structure in other words the bottom up philosophy leads to the top down taking power if if you if you treat it as an alternative one or the other mm-hmm. and so what i'm saying yes it it is a question of of communities definitely but it's not only a question of listening to the people and or the people getting together and and doing something out of yes that's crucial but also it's a matter of bringing them into the possibility of um trust that's necessary for any top down process when the conditions of trust are destroyed you cannot do that and so you have to cultivate that that possibility but yes it's it's also a question of you know, what stegler was doing was experiments that were in the community but also involving institutions and where both need to be transformed and not only transformed but then become scalable up to a larger scale uh, i just want to um list a few ideas because there i mean we've talked about quite a lot already and there are some elements in in your work and stiegler's work that people don't normally connect but that if we think about an alternative we have to take them into account it's the same i mean it's the same reasoning be, behind people who are rightfully saying that if you want to address climate change you also need to address social justice for instance so they're different they're on different dimensions but i think they're all kind of related mm-hmm. um and my question to you of course is if we can talk about how they are related so i would say the first what you're saying is um you speak about information and knowledge as almost information sometimes being the enemy of knowledge which mm-hmm. is a different idea from i mean people saying we live in an information society what people need to you know be informed citizens is information we talked about in the in the flat earth episode about um the idea that we don't know it doesn't work but if people don't accept the scientific consensus or let's say the this the uh, what the institutions are saying the scientific institution the 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 um the whole debate about vaccines is that they don't have the right information the truth let's say the true information and this is also connected to a break in trust uh, trust in institutions right um which we can also relate to kind of the new right movements to trump um i mean why would post truth is is i mean I, I i was it was the word of the year in 2016 i think by some dictionary and of course the what people everybody remembers is Sean Spicer saying that the inauguration crowd at Trump's inauguration was the largest in history period and then Kellyanne Conway was in, uh, interviewed about it and she said well um 
the journalist said, well, this is just not true. It's false. But she said, no, he just presented alternative facts. So this is one, one idea about post-truth and the idea that information is what should matter, but it doesn't seem to matter. Then the other part, because now that's kind of information and knowledge is kind of the noetic, the intellectual part of it. But we've also talked about desire and the idea, I think, which many people recognize is that right now we live amongst screens. And uh, in, in the Negantropocene uh, introduction, Stigler's book, the Negantropocene, not the, you know, the Negantropocene, you list seven challenges of our of our age, and one of them is that we the ubiquitous nature of of modern screens. But of course, in Plato's allegory, like the first um, sentence of the chapter that Stiegler writes about, it is is everything is a screen. But that was already true in Plato's day. So something seems to be changing around that around living among screens which is connected to a kind of depletion there's something that we need and we we're not getting it anymore and it leads to a kind of crisis mm -hmm. then this is connected to uh, the screens of course to technology and technological performativity which i don't quite understand yet but there's something there's a different dynamic in technology and information technology, information as data as being calculated, that is different from human society, let's say. So all of this is kind of connected under the umbrella term of the, we live in the Anthropocene and the alternative, I think the name for the alternative would be the Neganthropocene, uh, which if we look at what is the discourse around Anthropocene is that precisely what you say earlier, we just need to act. The time of thinking is over. We have all the information about climate change already. Uh, we just need to act. Um, and well, in Techniques in Time 4, Stiegler says, well, there's never been a, a time in human history where it was so urgent to meditate. And at the same time, we don't have time to meditate. Um, okay, so this is just a whole list of a whole range of concepts that, that somehow need to be connected to each other, I think, in this alternative. Uh, am I still missing other ones, or are these kind of the ingredients that we need for the, the cake? Uh, uh, yes, maybe we need another. another <laughs> I'm thinking of one. I think just one more, maybe that's the one you're thinking, is what you called about before the otium, the free time, the kind of the break, the, the, the I think Slieger calls it the intermittence, the, the time where you're not busy with your daily life. Was um, that the one you're thinking of or is there one more? <laughs> well, I was thinking of entropy and the, the question of- Yeah, of course that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Negatropocene means. Yeah. Uh, but I think I should get to that uh, through a roundabout way. First, I think it's important to say that the, the, the post-truth age and the destruction of trust were not created by Donald Trump. And the idea of uh, distrust in institutions was not created by Donald Trump. He exploited a situation that had been arising for a long time. 
even at the level of the most obvious facts, uh, you go back to to nineteen ninety. You go back to uh, two thousand and three, and the first, the second invasion or the invasion of Iraq. You know, yeah. everybody who had a brain understood that this was a complete lie that that was behind this and a lot of what has unfolded uh, in terms of geopolitics over the last 19 years or 20 years is as a result of this lie and the and the precursors to that lie but at a more general level um, there are many many factors that have contributed to the destruction of trust the point is to think them and if you think them and you don't just assign a scapegoat to them then you cannot avoid the question of what is it about the market of information and the arrangement of information technologies and the use of um, applied mathematics to influence desire I mean, what what is the goal of all of these technologies? Ultimately, the goal of all of them is to influence your desire in order to change your behavior, in order to make you behave on a shorter time scale as a consumer. That's what they all are for. And they work. They work in the sense that they they have created a a, a universe of people who have more and more lost the ability to take their time, lost the ability to cultivate their desire, act on shorter timescales, and consume. But at the same time, they don't work in the sense that they don't make anybody happy. In other words, if you engage in a behavior repeatedly, and more and more, and that behavior doesn't bring you satisfaction, except in the most instantaneous sense. What are you? You're addicted. You're an addict. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the logic of all of these technologies is a logic of addiction. And in that way, it doesn't work because addiction is not investment. And addiction is not desire. Addiction is the destruction of desire. So I think it's important to say that. Um, what I think, and it relates to what you said about otium and nagoti. Otium is the possibility of taking the time to be able to read a book from beginning to end or to read the score of a symphony. Whatever it is, there's or look out the window and see if you know something comes up or not that yeah, has nothing to do with what you were doing before, or to reflect on what has happened to you in order to reflect on what you should do next and how you could do it better. And time of reflection is largely destroyed. That's what Stigler is saying. Um, 
I said at the beginning or near the beginning that uh, the behavioral programs of all living things are based on a kind of memory, and I said that that memory is genetic memory. What does that mean? It means that at a certain time, several billion years ago, a new process entered the universe, one that seems to run opposite to the overwhelming tendency of the universe in the same way as uh, uh, in the Ister poem, Hölderlin says that at the source of the Ister, the water seems almost to run backwards. It almost runs backwards in the sense things almost run backwards with living things in the sense that instead of tending to fall apart, tending to go to the simpler structures to, to use up their um, energy, the opposite seems to happen. Complexity seems to develop. Differentiation seems to increase uh, and energy is conserved. All of this seems to be uh, counter to the second law of thermodynamics. And when we say that the genetic program is a memory, what we mean is it lasts over time. And by lasting over time makes possible new forms of differentiation and new forms of the lasting of this process. The lasting over time and the differentiation of organs and species that it makes possible that this memory molecule makes possible is what Schrodinger called negative entropy. Negative not in the sense of opposite, but in the sense of a counter tendency within the overwhelming tendency that is inescapably the entropic tendency of the second law of thermodynamics that as applied to the universe as a whole. At a certain point, brains develop vertebrates and when brains develop they uh, they produce a new, a new kind of memory that makes possible new forms of negentropy for animals um, that means that they can conserve the lessons of their experience but they can't pass them on and the question is Firstly, are human beings the same as animals or different? And second, are machines a type of negative entropy or are they something else? For somebody like Simondon, the answer to this question ultimately comes down to that machines need humans and that humans are the individuators here. In other words, there's a rank and the machines are not really negentropic, but the humans are. On the other hand, you have somebody like Wiener, Norbert Wiener, who argues essentially that more or less machines are a kind of anti-entropic thing. What's the mistake here? 
The mistake is that it's not a question of this or that. It's that we are technical beings. The question is not whether humans are negentropic or machines are negentropic or negentropic as well. We are with techniques. And what is negentropic for us is the dynamic relationship between us and our techniques that produces not a differentiation, not just of organs and species, biological somatic organs and species, but exosomatic organs or technical organs and idioms. In other words, localities that are not the locality of the, of the individual uh, organism or the locality of the ecosystem, but the locality of the village, the ethnic group, the clan, the nation, and so on, which are not species. This is because of the suspension of biological programs. So, so what Simon Don said is correct to say that uh, machines need humans, but humans also need machines. And, and cannot, need, cannot live without techniques. We are, it's not possible for us to live with techniques any, without techniques any more than it's possible for, um, you know, uh, uh, chi a chicken to live in the wild. Because yeah. a chicken is not a, only a chicken is not a species. A chicken is in a relationship with a artifice as yeah. well, because we've invented the chicken. So, but we have invented ourselves too, and been invented by the techniques that we invent. And the te techniques are kind of you. You use the word endosomatic, I think, so exosomatic. So exosomatic. it's kind of uh, that's. I think the basic idea is that cooking is kind of. Uh, externalizing effect function of our metabolism so because we can cook meat uh, which needs fire making unless you're very lucky that lightning hits uh, you you can prepare something and and eat it and your body can process it but this is also affecting our biology so we're not uh, okay let's just pause it there yeah right and if we've said from the beginning that we have read Socrates and understand that uh, techniques is a pharmacon, memory techniques is a pharmacon, all techniques is memory techniques. If we understand those things and we understand that a pharmacon means that it's poisonous and curative, has a positive and a negative side, where does that ultimately come from? It comes from the fact that we cannot live by our biology alone. In other words, if we live without techniques, Entropy gets us fast. Only by quick, only by constantly living with with instruments and artifacts can we stave off the entropy that that you can never escape anyway. But the but the and so entropy and negative entropy are positive and negative type tendencies as well. But but they're different from the positive and negative tendencies you get of life that is not just entropic and negentropic, but technically entropic and negentropic. And, and what that means is, as we've said from the beginning, constantly needs knowledge of how to live with it so it doesn't destroy you. And where that instrument itself can be what destroys that knowledge. 
but also makes it possible as well as necessary. And this is why, this is the point I'm getting to, for Stiegler, it's necessary as a philosopher to introduce new concepts here. Because we can't just say technically entropic and technically negentropic. What we have to say is Simondon ranks them and Wiener confounds them, the machine and the human being, because they don't, they're lacking concepts. And the concepts that they're lacking are what the form of entropy and negentropy when it becomes technical. And this is why Stiegler refers to that as anthropy, which in French sounds almost like entropy, and negentropy. With these concepts, you can understand what it means to say we need to make the value of values through which we produce new alternatives and new models, new economic and political models. We need to make that value of values what produces a diversification of knowledge and desire. What we really are saying is that makes negantropy the value of values in the struggle against entropy. This is the relationship between knowledge and information that he's describing in Techniques and Time for. Yeah. So negentropy is uh, so. There, I think there's also a concept anti-entropy. I guess if we if uh, human beings without techniques would be in the wild, which is not possible, but that you would just be fighting entropy, right? Which maybe you you can do for a little while on a very local scale, but that's kind of fighting the tendency of entropy. That's anti-entropy. But negentropy. I, I think Stiegler names this example is where you go, you go into, a f you go uh, to see a film and in a way that takes energy, but you come out and you have more energy, you have more ideas, you're inspired. So it's something that, yeah, uh, creates energy. Well, it depends. It depends how much um, you want to go into the, all of that terminology. <laughs> Uh, Maybe not too much because we, yeah, yeah. There's a, a mathematical biologist or a biological mathematician uh, called Giuseppe Longo, mm -hmm. who worked with Bernard, and he has tried to formulate questions about entropy and life in a similar way. And from the perspective of to what extent is it possible possible to mathematize the notion of of life as the struggle against entropy, which goes back to Schrodinger. And he wants to make a distinction between um, a machine and bi biological life, which is totally legitimate because. Uh, that's not the same thing as making an opposition between human life and a machine. Uh, and what does he say? The difference is that life only exists in the what he calls the extended critical situation. In other words, that you can't just press the off button. You can you can have a you can go into hibernation if you're a bear, but even if you're in hibernation, you haven't really escaped entropy. You, you've figured, you've got a behavioral program that 
that uh, is very good at conserving the itself against that tendency under certain conditions but you can't it doesn't escape the bear is not hitting an off switch you can hit an off switch and then turn it back on and even though there's entropy in a machine too but basically uh, in reasonable time scales it makes no difference to the machine it's not a process but life only exists as a constant crisis that's always unfolding and you in other words you're always involved every cell of your body is always involved in that struggle against entropy at every moment like we need to eat right as um, one just one example so there's a there's two two aspects to it one is the conservation of what i am not as unchanging because i'm always changing but as more or less stable metastable that's could be called negentropy and then there's the transformative character for instance when the biological evolution produces new uh things that never existed before sp species that never exist Sing the singularity of that process in its capacity to produce transformation to bring something into the existence that that the universe didn't can imagine beforehand uh, is something like anti-entropy. So in other words, you could say it's a, a division between a synchronic and a diachronic aspect. And the same argument could be made about entropy and negentropy. Uh, negentropy is uh, in that in that way would be the the, the tendency to metastabilize the psychic life, the social life that that we live in, not freeze it, but to, to metastabilize it in a dynamic that also can produce anti-anthropic transformations when when a system reaches its its limits and it, when what does happen when a system reaches its limits? Either it collapses or it transforms. Yeah. So that metastabilizing also, I think, means keeping things open, right? Because there's, uh, if you close things off from, let's say, the rest of the universe, in the end, entropy will win. Uh, and where every system always has a tendency towards closing. Yeah. And that's why the struggle, it, keeping it open is always a kind of a struggle. Yeah. And that struggle for us is what we usually call politics. Okay, so we've we've talked about entropy. Uh, so these these are kind of still um, the physics uh, aspects of it. And there's a relationship between entropy and uh, I, I mean Stiegler makes a connection between entropy, the Anthropocene. So we uh, we have the entropy with an E and with an A, and Anthropos, uh, let's say entropy becomes everything becomes humanized uh, the whole planet is kind of humanized now we have satellites in orbit we have you know there's there's everything is uh, entropized in that way mm -hmm. and then he makes a connection between information uh entropy has been used in information theory uh which he's very critical of and 
he also introduces this concept of technological performativity. Maybe that's a good next step because I know I'm very interested in the concept of performativity, but I didn't know technological performativity. One way of looking at performativity is uh, if I say I promise you this, then I'm doing the thing I'm describing. So it's not just a description. So that's where it came from, from linguistics. Mm -hmm. But you can expand it. I think Derrida has done that as well. For instance, uh, if you read a novel, it describes a world, but by describing that world, it also brings this world into being. So if I connect it this way, this way to, uh, to technology, then I would say that something like uh, uh, the smartphone or an internet or something, it creates a world in which it functions. So there's not a default world there and then you introduce a technology, but actually by introducing a technology, it also changes the world or the society, like maybe the, the technology of writing transformed the society in which writing becomes very important. Right. Well, uh, this is a character from the beginning. And what makes it hard to recognize from the beginning is firstly the fact that um, change is so slow, but also the fact that it's very hard to see that it's a dynamic between um, the organisms that we are and the, and the technical organs that we create. And this is what I was trying to describe with the idea of a mirror. It's what happens between the the mirror and the the one who sees in sees themselves into the mirror, because because if I if I carve a piece of flint and then I look at it, I'm looking at myself. Mm. And if I pick up a piece of flint that was carved. 50,000 years ago, and I look at it, I'm looking at us. And I can recognize us somehow. And the question is, when can I recognize us? At what point do I, can I say that it is us? Is the one who, who created a tool a million years ago us yet, or is it not yet us? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, whether, however you answer that question, what has already begun a million years ago is that dynamic, which is why I say everything happens in the between space, between the, the, the brains and the, or the nervous systems and the organism and the artifact. There's a dynamic unfolding. And to say that there's a dynamic means that it's performative, that it's not just that I decide to do this and then somebody else decides there's an unfolding dynamic that's a, uh, let's say, a psychotechnic dynamic, a psychosocial technique dynamic of individuation um, that is constantly reinventing the world, but mostly without being known. But but that's the, the let's say, aporia of decision. It's nothing but the sum of all decisions but we are not the authors of our decisions alone. All of our decisions are 
because we are responding to a dynamic that we are already in, that we are already born into, and this is why you need Heidegger, because he understands that our past is what is already running ahead of us, that we're that we have to grow into through adopting that past, and yeah. adopting it means transforming it, blah, blah, blah. You need your Heidegger for you need being in time. And so, so uh, decisions are because decisions are always decisions about something. You're always in a situation where you make a right. decision. We're in an extended critical yeah. situation in the same way as Longo describes for life. But in our case, that extended critical situation is a technical situation yeah. and a different kind of local situation in the sense that it's idiomatic to this locality, this nation, but then becomes uh the generator of another process which yeah. is globalization which is a delocalization process yeah and it's that delocalization process of globalization which is also the expansion of the western individuation process to the whole planet that produces the anthropocene yeah so the just to tie it to one more idea that the decision is always about in a way about the the state of facts like the the past the, the situation that I'm in, but a decision also involves uh, maybe what you referred to, a kind of a dreaming, of an imagination of something. For instance, if I decide, shall I stay, uh, eat in or go out for dinner tonight, I'm imagining two possibilities. And these possibilities have to, you have to be able to imagine uh, these possibilities. This is something that Judith Butler uh, says about performativity in the context of gender that you need to be able to imagine um, or conceive of a possibility in order to act. So you cannot you cannot do an action. Uh, I mean, one idea I have, for instance, in the time of Plato, you could think about, well, why didn't slaves want to vote at that time? I think it's probably in that time it will be very hard for for a slave to even conceive of the possibility to vote uh, and it not being more ridiculous than a dog voting or something well now we in, in the netherlands we even have the party of animals that are is fighting for the rights of animals so um, in other words yeah imagination and dreaming which is also to say desiring, anticipating, etc., have their conditions. And those conditions are technological. And to say yep. that something has conditions is not to say that it's determined, but it has conditions. And the, what are the conditions of imagination? So if we think back to what we said about idealism many hours ago, uh, for Kant, our relationship to the world depends on our the schemas through which we apprehend imaginative as a kind of imagination. Yeah. The, the schematisms of the imagination. But those schematisms are not transcendental as Kant thought. They have conditions that are not transcendental. And that mean that they that they change over time. Uh, they can last for a very, very long time, uh, but they change. And that's why it's uh, significant that Kant is writing under the influence of Newton 
and the idea that uh, the Cartesian division of time and space is is a is a scheme of the imagination that will last forever. And then we find out, well, maybe time and space are not quite what we thought. They're not, they're not Euclidean at all. Anyway, but nonetheless, we could also say the, the schema of the imagination that gives us the geometrical point, which is the foundation of geometry, and which does not exist. It's a kind of dream as well. There yeah. is no geometric point. We only dream it, but we dream it together collectively, and it lasts a very long time and maybe lasts for all time, but it's still an idealization. In other words, the dynamic has material, material conditions, but that dynamic still produces idealizations, dreams that... Uh, that are what we call knowledge that produces the the possibility of introducing into the universe things that change the rules of how it operates. Um, it chain, the, the game that we play has the possibility of introducing new things that change the rules of that game. You can't change the rules of physics. But you can change the rules of of the relationship to the second law of thermodynamics. So is that what you meant with what what a, a job of a philosopher would be at this at this at this moment? Because pretty much everyone agrees that if we go on as a as a species the same way, then it will it will not look good. So we need to conceive of a kind of a new future. It also means that we need to introduce something new. But at but the same know, time, everybody will say that. Every every yeah, every exactly. possible whoever if they want to sound wise, they say we need the new, we need the possibility of blah blah blah, and then they, that's the full stop. That's yeah. where they end the paper. That's where the book comes to an end. And then what? Then they write the next book. There's the same thing. What what is missing there? What's missing is that either they're materialists or they're idealists or whatever. They they can't think the performativity of that dynamic. That means the question is how do you nudge that dynamic in the direction that you want, and you nudge it not just you you need concepts which are a kind of techniques. Um, you need the concepts that will make it possible for you to reinvent the the technical and industrial future, and. And for Stiegler, those concepts are ultimately, at the end of his career, entropy and negantropy, where, where entropy is never able to be overcome, but it's the constant struggle and entropy as well, of course. Um, but we're constantly in the struggle against the tendency for knowledge to turn into information. And what we need is if we say, you know, everybody knows we have to change because climate change, blah, 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 but yet nobody's doing anything, nothing happens. Uh, it's because of power and vested interests, etc. Yes, it is because of power and vested interests, but that's not all that it's because of. It's also because of post-truth. It's because the conditions of our capacity to believe in a future 
and to trust in some trajectory to get to that future have been totally undermined. Uh, and the relationship to truth then is what makes it really a philosophical question. As long as you recognize that truth has its conditions and those conditions are what we do with our memory technologies, which are also our dream technologies. And I would add it's not, not just the, the possibility to, to get there, but the possibility to get there together because that has been eroded as well the 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 community the the sense of we where i think where uh, so, uh i can't remember his name this famous physicist um in in the 1980s anyway i i think is what is his name um like a public physicist Sagan. sorry Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan, yeah he already said, I think it was already in the 80s where he said, okay, look, here's the problem, <laughs> climate change. But this can only happen if we can only face this if we're able to work together. Uh, uh, not just the United States, but uh, all these different nations. And if we don't learn that, if we don't have this sense of a community of, of we need to get there together, uh, this kind of is doomed from the start. Right. Well, it's the That's decade not, where, yeah. where Margaret Thatcher said there's no such thing as society and Ronald Reagan said the problem is uh, the government is the problem, not the solution. Yeah. So this is the, this is the, really the decade in which the active attempt to destroy uh, all of the systems through which we try socially to um, find ways of living with our changing technical yeah. system will, will begin to really be undermined in a very powerful way that's continued for the last 40 years. That's the story of the last 40 years. And what is it? Because then, given what we've talked about before, we're not at the steering wheel in the sense that we can just draw up a new ideology. You said before, what is the next is maybe we don't know, which is maybe a great, like an end of a Socratic, Socratic dialogue about, okay, many of the assumptions and the, the way we, we approach things is, are not working and we need something new. That is what we know, but we don't know what it is. And, and you've been, I mean, you've been engaging, spending so much time and energy in the work of Stiegler translating it i think making it available i think you're not in it for for the money right i mean uh actually your book um uh, political at at reps uh, political anaphylaxis yeah, so this is available open source and, yeah sorry why are you struggling that title just rolls off the tongue yeah i don't know i don't know <laughs> i need to say it like 10 times but um so given what we talked about you invest energy in in a work also maybe with a sense of critique but also because of a desire um so what is it that you feel is is the importance of this work i mean i maybe i should ask another question first because it's so difficult stiegler's work is so difficult to read he introduces so many uh neologisms new concepts uh, exomatization 
um, there, I mean, I counted the sentence of like 177 words. Uh, I think in society, there's a lot of critique sometimes. If, if let's say public philosophers, if they write in a difficult way, there's the question, yeah, it can be, it's just posing because it should just be simple. So my first question would be, why is it so difficult? And the second question is like, is, is there a way that you can translate this? I mean, you're translating it literally, but are you, is there a way that you can translate it in, in a way that makes clear, why do we need to invest our time in trying to understand this work? Right, a few things. First thing, uh, Jacques Derrida that I mentioned before, in a book called Limited Inc said, if things were simple, word would have got around. <laughs> You know, like uh, the problems we have are complex. A tweet is not going to solve it. Uh, and the fact that the intellectual class, if you want to call it that, becomes captured by Twitter is one reason for thinking that it's a worse platform than, than Facebook, if such a thing is possible. Uh, but to go back to, to Stiegler's work, Yes, it's complicated, and uh, he has some very long and complex sentences. I don't believe the problem is neologisms. Yes, there's lots of neologisms, and the problem is that you you have to he, all of the ones from the earlier books are kept, and new ones are introduced as the work unfolds. So, so yes, there's a. There's a proliferation of neologism. Some of them mean almost the same thing as the old ones. So you can definitely ask, was it really necessary to do this particular one or that particular one? Um, and it's inevitable that people will ask themselves that, that question. But I would say two things. One is when you're a genius, you have to do it your way. That's the first thing. And, and Bernard Stiegler was a genius. His brain was just uh it was there it was all there i don't know when when it exactly happened but i think it was when he was in that prison cell something crystallized and after that it was just a matter of pulling it out of his head the second thing is um i've already said why i think neologisms are necessary because they mark places where a concept is missing in a sense, all our words were neologisms at one point in human history. Yeah. Um, so, but there are problems with the fact that his work is, is difficult. But one of the main ones is the one that I said, that the people who you might think are qualified to read it struggle because their reading is too narrow. And that's for a lot of reasons. One is because it's for superficial reasons, because it's cool for them to be experts in this narrow thing, and uh, and then there are other reasons. But it makes no sense to have that narrowness today, if you accept that there's that we have to address very complicated um, aspects of our contemporary crisis that. Um, that involve 
all kinds of science of climate change and so on, but also and fundamentally our relationship to knowledge and truth and desire. And that knowledge, truth, and desire are fundamental to philosophy, but they're but they're not able to be understood um, really only within philosophy. You need philosophy plus. Yeah. So you need anthropology and, and you also need physics. And archaeology and yeah. uh, uh, engineering, you need uh, and psychoanalysis. You need many, many things, and uh, the risk is, and this is something I've thought about a lot since uh, Bernard died, that at the moment, at the moment when somebody has the courage and the will to take that step past just philosophy and to construct a work that that really can give us important signs about what where we need to go at that moment uh, it could also be the case that there's nobody left capable of reading or digesting and that's uh, what we could call a modern tragic fate for uh, for philosophy but also for far beyond philosophy. And what is next for you? What are you working on right now? Uh, well, it's, I, I'm, I'm in the, the hiatus that was created by, by Stigler's suicide, uh, which happened in the pandemic, as you know, and, um it's been uh, catastrophic in a lot of ways for me personally and and generally um so it's been busy and uh, I, for instance i translated the whole of techniques in time four which was is was a a manuscript that stiegler sent to some people in 2017 but whether or not that can ever be published is something that I don't know. I also translated uh, uh, the uh, the book he wrote on Nietzsche, um, and uh, part of the sequel to that book, which was the final book that he wrote, um, called uh, "The Lesson of Greta Thunberg," who was very crucial at the end of Bernard's life. He changed the name of the organization that uh, he is connected with to reflect that. Um, and also I have published, though, all those ones are not published, no contract, nobody can read them, that's it. Uh, but I did publish the collective book that, that was in some way Bernard's final testament, um, even after the Thunberg book, which is called Bifurcate, There Is No Alternative, um, uh, the subtitle being an ironic uh, twist on the 80s ideas of Thatcher and Reagan. And uh, that is the book in which most concretely fleshed out is the idea, ideas about what steps have to be taken in what direction. Um, so hopefully people will read that book. Yeah. 
I'm just left with how can it be that, at, in my humble opinion, one of the greatest philosophers uh, that was alive until very recently, who has in maybe one of the greatest problem that humanity has ever faced. I, I wouldn't go so far to say that it's the solution, but I think there's so much in there that people can either um, use as an inspiration or they can use it as a point of critique because you don't, I don't agree with everything he writes, but the way he writes about things allows you to form your own thoughts about it. And which is so urgent and so timely. How can it be that that um, his work is not widely known as, let's say, Kant's work in his day? And at the same time, there's it's you know it sounds like there's a lot of unpublished work, a lot of work that needs to be translated, um, which would be uh, which could ha help uh, our current situation. I think. I don't expect you to answer this question, but it's... It's a real question. It's uh, Nobody can deny it's a genuine... Well, nobody who agrees with what you're saying, like me, uh, can deny that it's a genuine question. Well, well, maybe we just have to say there's not enough podcasts about it. <laughs> yeah, well, that I think that's a great way to end this part and, and say that maybe in the future we will talk about it more. Yeah. Well, in that case, uh, you know, uh, just let me say that uh, uh, thank you again very much. Well, I didn't actually say it at the beginning, but uh, <laughs> thank you very much for for having me on and for uh, pursuing questions a long way and giving a chance to to really flesh out some things. Uh, it's uh, it's rare and it's it's great when that happens. So I really appreciate it. Ah, thanks. That's great to hear. Thank you for listening. If you want to know more about Daniel's and Stiegler's work, I listed books in the description that you can download and read for free. I also recommend renting or buying the Ister on Vimeo. If you have any questions about what we discussed today, send me a message. Go to livefromplatoscave.com for other episodes and ways to support this podcast. I hope to see you again soon.